Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Hey everybody, how are you doing tonight? Welcome to Mormonism Live. So, there's our live uh, live audience giving us a little applause. Just happens to be a little uh, MP3 file. But here we are, F- RFM. We're back for another episode, Mormonism Live. I think this is, is this number 48, I think? Number 48. That's, what I, that's my count. Yeah, and uh, and we are four this, weeks away from our one year anniversary. Four weeks away from our one year anniversary. I love it because we have put a, out a show every single week. I've missed a couple of those, but Jonathan Streeter, just like last week, was kind enough to fill in. Uh, I did have a chance to listen to just a little bit of it at the airport uh, before I got on the airplane to head on my way back. I but, feel like I should get you something special. Why is that? For a one-year anniversary? Well, yeah. What do you get for the one-year anniversary? I can never keep the anniversary straight because I, I usually get divorced right before I get far along in that process. If if you're buying me a gift, it should be like a yacht or something. I've had at least two one-year anniversaries, so I should know. Is that is the one year, is that the yacht anniversary? Is it the second year that's hard to get to? Yeah, it is. It's very difficult. It's like second Nephi getting through it. If I'm buying you a gift, let's make sure it's cheap. But if you're getting me something, let's make sure it's really nice. Very good. By the way... You didn't watch the last part of the show last week? Okay. You didn't? I I did not, no. Oh, my Lord. Well, I tell you something. I and everybody else found out why it is that you don't let me talk directly to the callers. Uh, Why is that? Because pandemonium ensues. You you lost all control of the audience of of the live phone calls, huh? Yes, you are a tempering influence on me, and your absence was sorely felt. Okay, well, I'll have to go back and give it a listen. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to make my name disappear and your name disappear, but I guess for now we'll just leave them up there. Um, I'm gonna. When you take... figure that out, you could get a, a position on the Strengthening Church Members Committee. Maybe I think I think that's probably further ahead in technology than those twelve guys sitting in a room watching all these blog posts and listening to all these podcasts. Uh, that's got to be a hell of a job to listen to try to keep believing, keep paying tithing because they're not going to let you serve on the committee if you're paying if you're not paying tithing. So you got to believe, at least pronounce belief uh, publicly. You have to keep paying tithing. Meanwhile, you keep listening to Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real and Jonathan Streeter. And I got to imagine, you know, Lindsey Hansen Park and all the other podcasters, John DeLynn. And at some point, your testimony just unravels and you're stuck working for the SCMC. It's not a job. They give them hazard pay. And it probably is volunteer, isn't it? Like everything else in the church. Oh, I think so. You volunteer when they tell you to. And also, I, my understanding is they rotate them in and out with some frequency. Yeah, they, they probably do because they all lose their testimony listening to you yes. and me. And they take long, hot showers after the show's over. Uh, or cold ones, right. <laughs> so tonight, my friend, um, it's my week. And uh, what I thought we would do would be a lot of fun is to have a conversation about uh, this thing. 
This is a wonderful book uh, by the author and illustrator, Mark Elwood. We're going to bring him on now. And uh, Mark, how are you doing today? Let me get you unmuted here for just a second. How are you doing today, my friend? Great. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, excellent. We're we're glad to have you on. It's an honor to to have you on because I'm looking at this book and you and I met uh, maybe a couple of years ago at a Sunstone session and you gave me one of these posters. I think it's this very one that I showed up on the screen, which I can put up there again for a second. Um, this poster with Joseph Smith as a kid, kind of with his seer stone and his hat. And you gave me one of these posters free and you were really kind to me. You had a nice conversation with me and I was getting ready to go into my session where I was going to show people how Joseph Smith took tin or copper and fabricated the gold plates. And you had a replica of the gold plates on your table and you're like, Bill, Bill, take this with you. It'll help. And it really was. It was really uh, made for a great uh, prop and display kind of as I was giving the presentation. Uh, the only trouble was they didn't weigh the at least 80 pounds or so that yeah. So well, was, I'm from Atlanta and I had to transport that in my suitcase. You know, they weren't going to let me carry a gold tablet yeah. that size. Sorry. How no. are you going to get that through the metal detector at the <laughs> airport? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're behind me actually. They're, they're, uh, uh, I don't know, my head, but they're behind me up there. Uh, and they're made of mm. foam. So they're pretty light. Gotcha. It's cryptic. Yeah. And from here, it looks like Joseph may be being flanked by Sally Chase and don't tell me, uh, Lumen Walters. Yeah. Great job, RFM. Thank awesome. you. Look at that. We're going to learn maybe a little more about Lumen Walters. This is one of my favorite topics, by the way, Mark. Um, mm -hmm. I did an episode on Elvin's hand. I've done a couple of other yeah. episodes uh, talking about Joseph's treasure digging. And it's it's really my favorite facet of Mormonism is this early folk magic stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be a lot of fun here to have this conversation. Um, let's start off kind of talking about what, what led you to creating this book. Like what was the impetus for the idea that you said one day like hey i'm gonna start i'm gonna start drawing pictures of this and trying to kind of get an idea or give an idea of what this might have looked like right well okay so i definitely started like reading books at some point kind of uh got curious about you know mormon origins uh it was after i'd already left the faith um but at some point i picked up uh, making of a prophet by dan vogel and, um, you know, I just found myself sketching uh, right out of that book, you know, just story after story um, that in turn kind of led to, you know, following along there, uh, his dialogue article called the location of Joseph Smith's early treasure quests. Mm. And, um, you know, that that was super fun to follow through. And, you know, after that, I just kept going, you know, um, finding different sources um, and I, I guess at some point, you know, the sketches piled up and then I started taking notes on who was involved in each treasure dig, because that was the part that just kind of stuck out to me. I was like, you know, where was it? Because you can actually pinpoint these. Where was it? Who was there? What were they trying to get? And it's just, you know, on note cards. And then at some point I was like, this is actually, you know, you could put these together and make a pretty interesting story. Um, and from there... I mean, I went through different ideas of how I was going to present this story, um, but I ended up kind of following the <clears throat> um, the hero's journey, uh, Joseph Campbell. And I realized uh, that Joseph's storyline can really fit in there well. So, um, you know, the title of the book is, is The Glass Looker. And that, if you're familiar with uh, Joseph Campbell, um, the, the lowest point on the arc uh, is is basically at that point. So that's basically the halfway point will be the trial, 1826 trial, 
um, and around those events. So, which is where the name came from. That's right. Yep. Yeah. It's, I think the average believing member of the church is pretty uh, unaware of all of this early folk magic and all of these stories. And I thought you did such a beautiful job putting this together in a collection. And I think the, the animation, uh, the illustrations make it look more uh, safe, if that makes sense. Like it mm-hmm. looks like something cool. And if I was a member of the church, this would be something that would interest me to to dive into and to, for the first time to kind of tackle Joseph Smith's uh, treasure digging and the folk magic. And I just thought you did a phenomenal job of putting all this together. Um, you mentioned kind of you getting excited about uh, Joseph Smith's treasure digging. Um, how did you go about putting this book together? Like how did you decide what to include and what not to um, how did you decide to do it in the format that you did with illustrations, which obviously you're, you're, you know, an artist in that sense. And so I, I'm sure that's part of a huge part of it, but I'm also curious, like you included sources, which I think RFM mm-hmm. mentioned, you um, give some of these stories that are kind of off to the side that most of us don't encounter. And I'm just yeah. curious kind of what went into kind of how you created it. Okay. Um, well, so the, the back, I guess, behind the scenes is that, you know, as I collect these stories, um, you know, it's, I'm, I'm like standing on the shoulders of giants, right? There's all these brilliant guys that, and, and women who have um, put together all these, um, you know, documents and sources. And I mean, you can pick up any of these big books. And um, so I take all those together um, and kind of pick out the stories that will fit in to the narrative. Um, It's really hard for me because I'm like a completionist and I I just love, you know, all the stories. And I'm like, this, this is a great story because of whatever, you know, it tells, it kind of organizes Joseph in this way or, or, you know, it just gives it a little detail that maybe we overlook. Um, And I think uh, that's sort of, I don't know, I guess I, took those stories and then I put them into spreadsheets. <laughs> There's, it's kind of nitty gritty. I ended up making like a giant Google map, you know? Um, and I guess that's like physically how I'm kind of constructing it. Um, I'll take <clears throat> lines from sources and sort of uh, put them in a spreadsheet and then put, you know, where it's coming from. And if I ever make up a detail, I try to keep track of those details that I'm making up. Cause sometimes I have to just to stitch one narrative to the next. Um, does that cover, I'm trying to remember the other part of the question. Yeah, just, you know, you you chose to kind of include the sources, which I thought was a big deal, because people are going to be skeptical if they're reading this as a believer. And as a post-Mormon, I'm always curious where these stories come from. So it was interesting to me as well. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, and I, I guess that is one reason, like, I put the sources in there, because um, not everyone's going to go pick up those big books, you know, and, and, uh, I'm hoping that it kind of, you know, gets people interested in, in looking at those stories. Now I will say like, you know, I'm, uh, since I'm an artist and I'm not really an academic scholar or documentary, documentary historian, you know, I kind of have a little bit of slack here. I don't think, you know, I'm held to the same standards, um, as some of these guys. So, so I, uh, um, so I guess like, even though, you know, some of these stories are like told 50, you know, 60 years after the fact, I, I still consider it 
<clears throat> as something valid that that tells something about what the people thought about Joseph at the time. Um, you know, even there, there's always problems. There's dates. There's you know, um, you know, misspellings of names pretty bad sometimes. And so a lot of these stories are maybe overlooked because of their, uh, you know, their, their folklore. A lot of them, and they're not necessarily what I believe Joseph did or anything. But um, they're just stories that that I think really give us a better understanding of who he was and how people saw him. One of the things that happened when I was reading it, and I've read through the whole thing, made copious notes. Which I probably won't bore you with most of no, please do that. tonight, I but I love the um, uh, the setup, the way it's uh, structured, which is where you have a vignette, yeah, and then you have the documentation for the vignette. And honestly, you know, I am not as well acquainted with early sources like Dan Vogel is. Mm -hmm. By the way, Dan Vogel is a frequent watcher mm -hmm. of this show. For all I know, he's in the audience right now. But <laughs> and I noticed you mentioned his name along with others, giving them credit for the research, mm -hmm. and also Jonathan Streeter came yeah. uh, in for what honorable mention as far as uh, encouragement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, so I got to do a quick shout out to like my patrons, like honestly, like, you know, I'm self-publishing this uh, through my own little company thing, but I wouldn't have been able to do it without patrons. And Jonathan Streeter was one of the first guys, you know, we, we were in a car together at a, at a on location Sunstone event, I think uh, in Nauvoo and we had a ways to drive and he was, talking about um, Edward Kelly and John D. And I was talking about this idea I had. I was like, I, I'm thinking of making this story. And um, yeah, that's kind of, you know, he encouraged me right from the very beginning. So um, yeah, John D. will be in the prequel. <laughs> yeah, a new prequel. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and there's a lot of stories in here that, you know, were striking me as I hadn't heard these before or I didn't remember them. Mm -hmm. And uh, then to read the documentation at the end, which is also sort of done art, artfully. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's very legible and you're giving the sources and where they came from and the content of them. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised to find basically that you are following these pretty darn closely and even using lines of dialogue mm -hmm. or descriptions directly from the sources in yeah. your story. That's right, yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of a weird project. It's part art and part you know history and... I go on location, you know, as much as I can and go out there and, you know, tromp through the woods, try to find the locations that, that uh, Dan Vogel and, you know, some of these sources talk about. So, Oh, by the way, Mark, uh, some people are going to be listening to this in audio only oh. and not watching. Uh, Bill has put up the website where you can go to order a copy of the book. But could you tell our listeners where they can go to buy this book? Yeah, sure. So, um my website is the place to get it right now. Although um, I am basically out at this point of the first printing. So uh, I'll give my website, but actually if you want a copy and you live in Utah, the best place to go right now is Benchmark Books. Um, they have the last copies of the first printing and they're signed. So um, yeah, and they also have the best deal right now, better than I can do, so. I was gonna ask you about <laughs> that under yeah. the Martin Harris's sword. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I learned about from your book. Thank you. And I thought <laughs> this looks like a signature. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's my signature. Um, so, yeah, otherwise, uh, my website, I will have a new um, printing available soon. Um, it's going it'll, they're printing it like right as we speak. It'll be two weeks or so before it's available, but you can order it there. It is um, theglasslooker.com. 
theglasslicker.com. And I didn't complete the thought, which you already understood, which is that glass liquor comes from the 1826, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Bainbridge, That's right. New York Bainbridge trial, where Joseph Smith was accused and tried for being a glass looker. Yeah. And it kind of, I don't know, I think he might have even referred to himself. I'd have to go back and look at that for sure. But I think he might have even referred to himself as a glass looker, hmm. perhaps in that trial. Um, honestly, if you want to read the glass looker trial, like the events of that right now, one of the best places to do it is Fair Mormon. So, or is it just fair now? Whatever it is. Who the heck knows? It's just yeah, fair it's now because they got rid of the so many times. Yeah. I know. Well, they, they got tired of offending the creator of the universe. Yeah. By having Mormon appended to fair, so they got rid of it and just went back to fair. They have a yeah. really good article, though, there on their website that, that uh, you know, of course it's slanted, but they, they have a lot of great sources. And when I'm in a hurry sometimes, I'll just go there so, to Same. find it. Absolutely. And you know something that was really neat is that is that you you do your vignettes, you create your vignettes off these historical sources. And the thing that I thought was very impressive about it is that you're not really there, as far as I can tell, to take a position mm -hmm. on accuracy or anything else, but you're just there trying to uh, create uh, artwork that mm -hmm. depicts what the sources themselves say. And some are things that are positive about Joseph Smith, at least from a believer's point of view. Mm -hmm. Some things are maybe more questionable. I don't think there was anything in there that, that I would see as negative about Joseph Smith. He seems to be the hero and the protagonist of the story. And he's having adventures uh, before, this is all before Moroni shows up. I, mm -hmm. I think they'll probably be part two, but yep. he's having all these incredible adventures uh, with uh, glass looking, with demons, uh, with spirits, with treasure digging, all these great things and becomes this wonderful story. And one of the things that really touched me, I'm sorry, Bill, you know, this is me. I apologize. Mm -hmm. You're good. One of the things that touched me is after all, I, I love the opening with uh, Captain Kidd. Mm -hmm. And I loved it when he shoots, you know, the guy he trusts or whatever, mm -hmm. at least in there, right? Because dead men tell no tales, etc. Um, I thought that was wonderful because I thought that's going to happen. And then it did. And it was kind of creepy. But the first story about Joseph Smith then is this little incident that I, I don't recall ever hearing where he helps out this little girl mm -hmm. who is being kind of treated badly by her brothers. And she's too tired to walk any further. And they just make fun of her and leave her. And then Joseph Smith puts her on his shoulder and walks mm -hmm. her to his house, to her house, mm -hmm. walking girls to his house, his house would happen <laughs> later. But early on, I just <laughs> walking them to her, to her, her, her house, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, a lot of times people ask me like, what, you know, why did I pick that story to start out? You know, why didn't I start with the first vision or, or something like that? Um, I like that story because, um, you know, first of all, like I found it as a, a good way to introduce Joseph where, um, you know, it, it sort of disarms like ex-Mormons, you know, perhaps there, there might be like, well, wait a minute, this is not, we're not going to trash Joseph through this whole book or, um, but it also like when you read it and if you read the source after it, it's really um, enlightening because it talks about how, you know, her parents would hire um, him to work the farm. And as long as he was there, he could keep the guys, the other, uh, I guess, you know, the other kids, his age working hard. But if he wasn't there, they would be lazy. They would, you know, do nothing. Um, and they talk about in that story that, um, you know, he was somebody that could control others, but, but 
that also there's a bit of a warning in the story that he needed, you know, we got to watch out for this guy. Like he, he needs to be crushed is what, yeah, yes. the words they say in it. Yeah. Um, because they saw where he could go with this. Um, and if you, re if you have a chance, look up the entire source, I had to truncate it, you know, but, it, um, it goes into more detail that, you know, the first, his first vision was a, a vision of a pure, you know, simple youth or something. But then they're like, but then his second vision after that, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I just, um, think that when someone reads that, if you're a believer, um, you see it, let me see if I can explain this, you know, um, when you're a believer and you see that, well, it's very binary. If people want to crush him, they are working for the devil, right? They're they're in the mobs that are chasing him later or whatever. So you see that as kind of like a story that that's pro Joseph. Um, and if you're in an Exmo or you know or just someone who's kind of more uh, nuanced, you'll look at that story and see, hey, you know, wait a minute, these guys uh, these guys could see where this was going, you know, um, and. So I think a lot of times with this book in general, just all the stories, um, I do try to stay pretty neutral. And I think people will be able to pick out um, different things from it. I, I, you know, I, I, it's got a kind of a broad appeal. I do have believers that buy it. And, um, you know, we had a comment on the screen a minute ago um, about that. And um, and I have ex-Mormons that buy it and they consider it like a great ex-Mormon project, you know? Um, and for me, it's a history project first, an art project first. But um, I, uh, you know, I definitely am not drawing necessarily what I believe. It's more, I'm just trying to relate the way that the people tell the stories. So. And then if I could just say one other thing, Bill, and then I'll go into the background for a minute. Um, and then you bookended that first story with another mm -hmm. very positive story about Joseph Smith, where it actually works. He looks into a hat with stones. These yeah. are the three black stones, which I'd never heard of in any other source. Okay. And maybe you yeah. hadn't either. But these three black stones, right, which yeah. are portrayed as being before he finds his first seer stone, his under the tree, right? At least in your chronology. Yeah. But uh, it's while he's on that trek, and he stops at that tavern. Greens? Yeah, Samuel Green. And just as a asterisk there, I placed that story there. It's a complicated yeah. story. It could have been placed in, uh, you could place it after. Um, right. I just found it convenient that it was along the way of the, the story and and it works well kind of um, with the uh, the narrative, I guess. You know, and there's this the guy there, at the t uh, he's sitting there using these to read the fortunes of young girls, mm -hmm. trying to make some money along the way. And there's a guy, who's Judge Clark, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And he, he's at the tavern and he has lost his wallet. Mm -hmm. And this is not, you know, the wallet that I have. It's a big fat Hurkin thing that they would yep. put in, I think, in the big pocket on the side or something like yeah, that. That's right. And he's lost it and he can't find it. And he says to Joseph, he sees what he's doing. He doesn't know him. He says, well, why don't you put your rock in your hat and tell me where the, my wallet is? <laughs> yeah. and, and Joseph does it. And he says, oh, well, you, did you stop at the ford, this muddy ford on the river? And I don't know what river it was on this river coming here. He goes, well, yeah, I did. And he says, well, that's where you lost your wallet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where you bent over to do something and it went down the river and it's been caught against a branch that is down in the river. So it's mm -hmm. further downstream. And the judge Clark then goes back to look for it. And he, according to the story then he kind of looks for it where mm -hmm. Joseph Smith indicated it would be, which would be downstream of where he forded. But then he goes back to the place he forded the stream and darned if it isn't lying there on mm -hmm. the ground. Right. 
And I don't remember hearing that story before because it was always interesting to me. Mm. How is it that Joseph Smith can get and maintain a reputation for finding things if he never really finds anything? Yeah. Um, yeah, that that story is pretty cool. Like um, at the end of it, it says, you know, that's the beginning of his fame, right? You know, it, mm -hmm. from there on, his fame grew. Um, and it's funny because the Samuel Green who's telling the story says, you know, that's ridiculous. Like, you know, he got it way wrong. It wasn't down the stream. It was right here in the mud. Um, but, you know, it's it's for Judge Clark. It was a big deal. And he's on, on a circuit, um, I guess, and traveling. And maybe he's telling that story. You know, maybe it's it's growing in that way. Um, so let's see, uh, the, oh shoot, I forgot what I was going to say. What, what was the other part you were talking about? Well, it's Judge Clark in the wallet. And, uh, obviously Judge Clark sees, he, he, I found my wallet by oh. looking close to the place he said, but he's seeing that. And other mm -hmm. people would look at that and say, well, yeah, but he got it wrong because, uh, mm -hmm. it wasn't there. He didn't say it was there where he forded the stream. He said it was down river and caught against the branch. And that's not true. Yeah. And it's a forded place where everybody fords, it's muddy. This is the obvious place where he would be mm -hmm. most likely to lose his wallet. So they would uh, chalk it up to a lucky guess. Right, right. Yeah. But I, I think that, you know, and, and what I'm posing at the end is the question people are still asking today, believers, uh, you know, definitely believers are asking this is like, you know, is there something special about the stone? You know, because these are not hit you know, the way I portrayed it in the book is like, he's using these three stones, you know, they're not even real yet. Somehow he gets it right. Is it a lucky guess or, or did he somehow channel inspiration there? So um, even today, you know, some people say, well, the stone, there is something to the stone, like that's important. Um, or is it just inspiration? Right. Yes. Is the power inside Joseph Smith or right. is it in the stone? Is it like Dumbo and the feather? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Were there were there things as you put this book together, as RFM's pointing out, there's stories in here that I thought I had dug everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you start with D. Michael Quinn's book and you work your way out from there. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I knew all the stories, even to the point where there's a story you left out just to make a joke. There's mm -hmm. a story where Lorenzo Saunders uh, tells us about a time that Joseph Smith Sr. is in the tavern and uh, he gets his penis measured, right? Like he's drinking too much and he claims to have big genitals or something. And so mm -hmm. Lorenzo Saunders in this source uh, talks of, you know, so there's all these connecting stories that are just mm -hmm. crazy that mm -hmm. are taking place in the same tavern of other stories that you're sharing about Joseph Smith's folk magic, for instance. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious as you dove deep into this and you're, you're having a weird look on your face, RFM. Are you familiar with this story? <laughs> I think you've mentioned it to me before. I was just thinking that, uh, yeah, Joseph Smith senior had hands. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he did. Okay, so um, as you dove deep into the information, Mark, what, what kind of like, what were some of the stories that really stuck out to you, uh, whether you included them or not in the book? What were some of the things that you were like, "Wow, that's kind of that's kind of unique or crazy," or um, you weren't expecting it? Um. Well, uh, let's see. I mean, there is just a plethora of stories around Martin Harris uh, that are fantastic. Um, and I tried to, we haven't even seen him in this book yet, right? Um, right. But he will become a character later, obviously. Even and, though it's dedicated to him. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the whole the whole thing is going to be dedicated to him, really. So it's, um, 
but he has so many great stories. Um, you know, I think the one that we, we like to toss around uh, people that are out of the churches, you know, that he saw Jesus as a deer, you know, um, on, on a road, he was talking with him. Uh, but there's other, other great stories as well. Um, I did a sketch in the back of, uh, when he encounters the devil, uh, kind of a, like creature. Um, yeah, that kind of road. scared me because you have yeah. some sketches in the back of your book, which I looked at and I really enjoyed and it looks like a, some of them will figure in the next book, like this particular one. If I can hold mm -hmm. it up here. Can mm -hmm. you see the, the, the toad in the box with the plates? Mm -hmm. Can you see that there? Because I can't really see because it's in front of my face. But that was really cool. And then you've got this one about going across the road in front of Martin Harris, who you explained to me before the show was Martin Harris. Um, and that is an absolutely freaky type picture right there yeah. right over here yeah it was like the first sighting of Groot yeah <laughs> but you've got those trees and his horses are rearing up and he sees this thing I mean that creeps me out and that's amazing to do with uh pen and ink yeah um yeah and I just you know we're I'm kind of I'm trying to write this where we get gradually introduced so you know we're we're um you know, we learn about buried treasure, but I haven't really gotten into the spirits and the demons yet, but that's coming, you know, that's uh, volume two. And I actually did start kind of at what is going to be volume two. And I decided to work back a little bit and do some world building in this first volume. Hmm. So, oh, wonderful. Oh, yeah. Bill. Yeah, yeah I just pull these up. So, by the way, this is Sally Chase. I'm sure all the male members of the audience fixated right here on this. <laughs> This yeah. is Sally Chase, and I thought it was just wonderful and unexpected that Sally Chase in your book turns out to be something of a hottie. Yeah, um, there's that's not the only interpretation. I think there's another story out there where someone's kind of visualized her as more of like a hag type character. So, you know, <laughs> I chose not to do that. I'm drawing this, so, you know, I'm just... Yes, you get to do it. And it was much more interesting that way. And she comes across as much more powerful... I mean, mm -hmm. you, you dress her in red. You've got this wonderful uh, full page illustration of her um, with her. There you go. With mm -hmm. the stone, right? Uh, this, yeah. this, there's a great deal of power that I sense coming from this image. Well, you know, as I, I, wanted, I wanted Sally also to be someone that Joseph, you know, he wants to be like that. Like she, um, everyone in the village is, you know, going to her to ask for, you know, advice on where they've lost different items and um, their cows and things. And so I have Lumen just kind of bounce into the story for a minute and mm -hmm. it, it inspires Joseph, intrigues him, but Sally lives there. So, you know, she is going to be much more of a mentor. And I just figured, you know, if uh, she was attractive and she was someone that he, you know, he could look up to, um, you know, she's a little bit older than Joseph, but in, in that way it's, um, you know, might be some something that um, he would really gravitate towards her, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah, I thought that was just a fascinating, uh, wonderful choice on your part. And then there's Lumen Walters, who, mm -hmm. by the way, you know, I've heard of before, but here and there. Mm -hmm. And he's always been sort of this uh, ephemeral kind of character in my mm -hmm. mind, not able to get a good fix on him. But one of the wonderful things about your book and drawing him is that now he is fixed permanently in my mind and i see him here possibly as sort of a um we talked about the hero's journey right 
-hmm. And he sort of maybe um, the Gandalf to Joseph Smith's Frodo Mm -hmm. or um, the Obi-Wan Kenobi to Joseph Smith's Luke Skywalker. Yeah. So, you know, he is, but he's also going to be antagonistic, you know, like he comes back into the story a couple times and uh, at some point he's the one kind of, called in to try to locate the plates um, when Joseph's hiding them around the neighborhood and stuff. So yeah, we'll see him again. Uh, he just makes a brief appearance right now. Oh, great. And, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I love that you make him kind of look, as you're saying here, like a scoundrel, which if you, if you know a little bit of the history about Lumen Walters, he, he kind of comes into, you know, this, of course I'm telling this to the audience, but he comes into town. Yeah. He doesn't stay too long. It seems like, and he's kind of out of there. And um, there's a lot of, anecdotal kind of data pointing to him being dishonest and um Mm -hmm. so kind of painting that picture of him and letting us see both sally as this attractive scryer in town and uh, lumen walters as maybe more of a scoundrel less attractive kind of person Mm -hmm. uh it's kind of it's kind of fun to have that mix-up uh of character uh that joseph smith is almost assuredly on some level even if they didn't look anything like this he's pulling from both of these people Mm -hmm to figure out how he's going to be a, a, a scryer or a, or a, a person who looks into peepstones and try to emulate whatever qualities he saw as beneficial from both these two who had some impact on him, at least to some mm-hmm. degree. Yeah. You make a good point, Bill, too, that there, the, the contrast between the characters is pretty interesting. You know, Sally is, you know, just a, a neighborhood girl. Um, and, Lumen, you know, is this traveling vagabond type guy, but yet he can speak Latin, you know, like he's, he's been educated well. And um, there's all these rumors about where, you know, his life, you know, running away at six and things like that. And, you know, my kid's seven, I don't think he could survive outside for 24 hours. So, you know, like, I don't know how this guy ran away at the age of six, but uh, there's, you know, he's just uh, in itself, like a fascinating character. And, um, I had a lot of conversations with um, Johnny Stevenson about him uh, and, you know, that, I don't know if you're you're familiar with him, but uh, Johnny would find all kinds of, you know, uh, information about Lumen and how he was, you know, he was unattractive. And at some point he, this is probably after the fact, but he got like pitted face from possibly from like smallpox or something. This was, yeah, it's just like, um, and we do have a description of like what he looked like. So. Anyway. Yeah, and that was interesting to me too because your research into this book is extraordinary, and that you even in the footnote mention that you are drawing Lumen Walters after a description that was given of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, at least his wardrobe. You know, he, you could interpret his face yeah. any way you want, but but yeah, well, I'll I'll tell you the one place in the the whole book that made me actually laugh out loud. Mm-hmm. Was where Lumen Walters is out there reciting his incantations while all the men are digging this massive, mm-hmm. massive hole. And then all of a sudden he starts to become aware of a young person in the bushes watching mm-hmm. what's going on. And then there's this question mark. And he says, who the hell is that? <laughs> and it's Joseph, right? Because he snuck yeah. outside to go watching what the men were doing. Yeah. Right. And he uh, was supposed to be pretty vulgar. So that, you know, Brigham Young mentions that, uh, you know, these all these people knew each other. But Brigham Young mentions that who we think is Lumen anyway, that he's talking about that this guy would swear um, 
Like I think it, he said, if you love swearing, it was it was beautiful to your ears. But as for me, I would leave the room or something like that. Oh yeah, because Brigham Young's ears were just so chaste. Saintly, saintly. Yeah. yeah, who the hell is that? So I guess that's the yeah. PG version of what he probably really said. Possibly, yeah. But of course, this whole scene is created in your mind, right? Yeah, I mean, there's no. The only thing we have to go on there is actually from Fayette Laugham's account. And again, we're there's a conjecture that that you that the man with a dark colored stone um, that Joseph sees there is Lumen. You know, like that's just conjecture, but um, I thought it was really cool. And um, I think um, who who came up with that? It was, uh, I don't remember, but there, there's um, Dale Morgan. Dale Morgan was the one that first thought that perhaps they were both one in the same, this person from Fayette Laughlin's account. So, um, and Fayette, Fayette Lotham, he was one of the fellow money diggers, wasn't he? Uh, he was, you know, I don't think I ever have him. We'd have to ask uh, Dan Vogel, Don, Don Bradley. He's he's done a lot of research with Fayette Lotham, but okay. uh, or Dan Vogel, he probably would know. But I don't think that he was ever involved. He was a friend of the Smiths, uh, particularly Smith Sr. And uh, Joseph Sr. Would, would go and kind of talk to him. Every, periodically and uh he gleaned a ton of details about the early book of mormon and stuff maybe maybe i'm confusing it is he the person who in part two is going to be giving the wonderful account of joseph smith seer joseph smith senior telling him about joseph smith finding the toad in the box that transfigured itself into a man um that would be no, I think that's somebody else. Um, Boy, I'm sorry, two. I could be. <laughs> that's two for two. <laughs> but that's where the that's where this, that's, this there's the Saunders, from, right? Yeah, the the Saunders. Uh, Lawrence. There's or Orson Saunders has an account about the toad. Um, of course, Willard Chase has, like, yes. Willard Chase gives the first kind of account of that, and then Orson Saunders gives one that's like building off of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd have to check and make sure I'm giving the right name, but this is more extravagant. Like, you know, Willard's is like a, a creature that comes out of the box. Whereas Orson's, uh, if I'm getting the name right, is more like it grows. The, the creature grows and continues to grow until it has like, it's as large as the mount, as large as the mountain. He has glittering eyes and he strikes Joseph and he flies down the hill. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a different, it's a bigger, and you can tell that story has grown. Yeah. So. There are, there are parts of this that, I don't know, there's just parts of this narrative that are so interesting to me. When I first joined the church, 1997, I think, mm -hmm. and uh, or 96, and um, you, you, when I joined, I learned this story that, uh, you know, this guy named Abner Cole has taken Joseph Smith's manuscript, and he's going into the Grandin print shop at night, and mm -hmm. and he's reproducing it under the strangest of name, the Book of Pukey, I think, is what it ends up being called. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if he's making a vomit reference or what he's doing, but it, it, it's kind of a cool name. Mm -hmm. And that's all we get. That's all we know about Abner Cole. But what we learn, you know, through studying this treasure digging history is that Abner Cole, who produced the Book of Pukey under the name of Obadiah Dogberry, is also one of these treasure diggers who's highly involved. He's got things going on in his own property uh, where Joseph Smith and Lumen Walters and it just, I, I'm just, doesn't it just kind of get a little crazy at some point? All of this history, when you look at it mm -hmm. in the big picture, um, it, it's kind of insane the amount of, I want to use the word fantastical amount of information that comes across in all of these folk magic tales. Yeah. Um, 
my wife and I were just kind of talking about how all these stories, um, you know, we, we still do the same thing today. Like the, the thing about these stories is they like, um, they give, well, let me back up. So like today we might tell stories, you know, kind of, uh, over like, you know, our, our families all have these stories that build faith or whatever. Right. Um, and you know we might have a story about an angel or something and we just tell it within the family and then occasionally you'll have someone at like a uh, church uh on fast sunday and they might say something and you're kind of like i don't really believe that but for them it's really powerful and it's like what gives them faith um to believe and follow you know the the teachings of of the church or the prophets well um i think in joseph's time a lot of these fantastic stories were the same thing for them. We look at them today and we're, it's hard for us to believe that, um, you know, that Martin Harris talked to a, a deer that was also Jesus, you know, but, you know, for him, or like the sword, you know, the first page that I have there of with the sword, right? For him, he, he saw in vision a sword being let out of heaven. It was like a fiery sword and it pointed the cardinal directions and then pointed at the hill Cumorah. Um, you know, it's kind of hard for us to be like, okay, that's, that's real, you know, but for him, it gave him a reason to like, believe Joseph, like it validated his, yeah. his choices in life and selling all his property and, you know, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. What yeah. I, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. So go what ahead. I, what I thought was beautiful, the reason I say that is I put the map up here on the screen. One of the things mm -hmm. I think that's beautiful about this create this this creation of a book that you've put together is that you made all this really tangible as I was flipping through and reading it over the last couple of days. And, and I know these stories now uh, for the most part, again, there, I think there was one that RFM mentioned that I also didn't know about. And uh, as I'm reading each of these stories, I'm seeing the illustrations. I'm seeing the maps of the very locations where these things are happening. I'm reading the witness accounts from the sources where you're drawing these uh, vignettes from. And what I'm left with is just this overwhelming having to confront it and to deal with it and not be able to dismiss it, which I think is something Mormonism has done for a couple of hundred years. Mm -hmm. And this book, I think the beautiful thing it does is it makes all of this so tangible. It makes Joseph Smith's treasure digging tangible. It makes these witness accounts tangible. It makes the, the locations that they took place in tangible. And again, I, I'll just say it, it, it really forces all of us as any person who reads this to confront this early history that Mormonism would want nothing more really than to not have any of us know it exists. Uh, I think to some degree they have almost completely removed treasure digging or folk magic. I think it's the whole reason we switched over from a seer stone to Nephite spectacles in the first place, both in mm -hmm. the first uh, generation with Joseph Smith Jr. himself, and then uh, preceding historians and uh, and others, uh, other accounts got preference because if we deal with the seer stone, we have to confront Joseph Smith's treasure digging, and and I think your book, no no motives attached to it. I think your book beautifully encourages us to confront that history. Thank you. Yeah, I think. The, it's it's really a shame that those that a lot of these stories aren't told because, you know, um, there's so many like just details that are fascinating. Um, you know, you, you'll get stories about Joseph coon hunting. Um, 
stealing watermelons from watermelon patch. Um, just kind of like just random things like this, little details that make him more human. But also um, you get, like you said, the, the fantastic things, which when you start to see them all together, it, it does, it is a lot. You know, there's a lot of things going on that people would interpret um, to be faithful. Uh, In some ways, he's, he comes across as a Huckleberry Finn type character. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah that's of course, kind of... Oh, go oh, ahead, I was go just ahead. Saying, yeah, because I mean, there's a whole scene in the graveyard with him taking the dead mm -hmm. cat and swinging it around in order to, I think, raise mm -hmm. up a spirit or something. Yeah, yeah, um, and and of course, like it was an Indian Indian Joe. Uh, you know, they're aren't they digging up a corpse at one point? Um, it, it's I think um, him and Muff Potter and the yeah. Doctor, whatever yeah, the his doctor, name was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he's no, the one I, who gets killed by Indian Joe. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I think that was sort of why we added the subtitle collected tales of Joseph Smith as well, because we were sort of thinking of like Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn type of, you know, these little short stories that kind of got stitched together. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the things just on a personal note is when I confronted a number of these stories, including the one about uh, Martin Harris and Dear Jesus, um, mm -hmm. the whole backdrop of mormonism its whole foundation is built on all these fantastic stories mm -hmm. of a spiritual and supernatural kind of uh manner and it's also based on witnesses but when i started finding out that martin harris saw all kinds of fantastic and odd things that had nothing to do with these foundation stories mm -hmm. and other people did too it started mm -hmm. making me think you know people back then would see all kinds of things that probably yeah. never happened yeah uh, yeah that's you know i i like to think of it like with the treasure digging, digging kind of setting to you're you're out in the woods well first of all someone's told a story right you've got this backstory of like you know some somebody got killed and they they you know they bury their treasure they threw in a corpse in the ground or whatever and um and then so you've kind of got this ghost story already and then you're gonna go out in the woods at night with a lantern and it's going to be freaky. And, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever been out in the woods at night. Um, but, you know, imagine you've already, you're going out there with this purpose of, of finding an artifact left by a dead guy or whatever. And there's literally possibly a, you know, well, in their mind, there is actually a ghost or a guardian or some protector. They've, they're going to try to defeat or, or uh, appease in some way. And that, you know, that might involve a little bit of uh, magic and, you know, folk magic, uh, a little bit, perhaps even a blood sacrifice of an animal. Um, it's starting to get pretty freaky. And, um, you know, like you can kind of imagine where it would be very easy to see things. And, and not to mention also a lot of times, you know, there'd be a little bit of whiskey involved or something, you know. So, um, yeah, I can just I give them a little bit of slack because, you know, what else are they going to do at night too? But <laughs> there's no TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the pastime. This is, I consider it the early 19th century version of the lotto. Yeah. Or uh, Farmville. <laughs> don't get that reference. <laughs> That's a social media game that occupies hours of people's time. Well, oh, well, there's this huge, huge, uh, what, uh, pot at the end of this rainbow that you can get, like, the lotto, right? Yeah, yeah. And you always hear about people winning it, but you never win it yourself. Right. And that's it. They put it in the newspapers, right? There's all yeah. these newspaper reports with people actually having found stuff according to the claim of the newspaper. Or they'll say, you know, 
so-and-so thought they found some things and you'd leave it up to you to decide. But um, you guys were mentioning here, you know, this pirate's treasure. I, I wanted to include because Captain Kidd is one of these uh, stories that, you know, on the on the outside of Mormonism, there's a lot of critics of Mormonism who are insisting that this story has a place in how Joseph came to um, use certain words like Moroni or, or Camorra. And um, almost assuredly, he would have known about some of these stories. These would have been his his version of comic books in the 1800s, right? They're, they're telling of these stories. Mm-hmm. And as we know, Joseph Smith did have access to books. And we know at least when it comes to like Adam Clark's commentary, he was reading at least some things voraciously. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, you... I mean, I imagine you went back and read Mormonism Unveiled, the Eber D. Howe and the Flastrous Hurlbut stuff, right? right? Yeah. And when I joined the church, again, going back to the 90s, um, it was clear to me reading what the church had to say, which was very little, and reading what apologists had to say, which was pretty significant, that we couldn't trust that book. We couldn't trust the witnesses in it. We couldn't trust the... Uh, person who funded the uh, project, which I think is uh, Eber D. Howe, if I'm not mistaken. And then I think mm-hmm. last year's Hurl Buddy sent out to collect the affidavits. And what I found is I started to think more critically and, and I went back and read all those accounts was that I originally dismissed it because my faith and its defenders told me to. But when I went back to read it, what I discovered was there was just too much smoke. There were there was too many witnesses and too many stories, and some of them were unconnect. They were connected stories, but they were unconnected witnesses, mm-hmm. to the point where it just felt like Joseph Smith, in an overwhelming way, was absolutely treasure digging all over the place. And I know Dan Vogel did a, I think it's in dialogue, and it's an article about Joseph Smith's treasure digs in the Palmyra area. Yep. And what you learn there, I think there's 17 of them, 17 treasure digs in the area. And yeah. what it, it becomes is that, you know, Joseph says he quit after getting $14 a day for a month or whatever, $14 a month or whatever, and he just calls it quits. And the church just walks away from the story at that point. Mm-hmm. But as you're showing in your book, it is, there's a plethora of these accounts. Right. Um, yeah, it's definitely far more than, you know, the the rewritten kind of history that we get um, about Joseph. There's so many. Um, and, you know, Dan Vogel is very careful, you know, uh, in his counting, the way he counts as well, you know, to um, to include ones that are pretty likely to be Joseph. But there's there's a lot more, too, um, and uh, that are more, you know, obviously, like Joseph became really famous as a treasure digger, um, as, as a seer. And so if you find a hole back in your farm, you probably are at some point going to blame Joseph Smith. So there's some, uh, there's probably some level that are not um, necessarily Joseph Smith, but are said to be attributed to him. But um, there's also a lot that are very uh, just kind of like, a, 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 you know, we just have a fragment of a, of a treasure dig story and, um, and, you know, there's so much there that we don't have. So, Oh, I was going to say also, um, uh, Porter Rockwell, um, says that, you know, everybody was, was digging and it's just that they, you know, most of them would not admit to it. And even when you're looking at the, um, the Hur- Hurlbut affidavits, um, 
different people will call other people out in their own statements, but they won't say in their own statements that they were involved, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I joined, I, joined Am, I joined Amway for a little bit. I know I would have been on a treasure dig in the 1800s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what one of the statements said is that what other people were doing privately, Joseph yeah. Smith did openly. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then I was also going to say, uh, um, Bill, is that, uh, you know, you, you, if you look at only the Hurlbut affidavits, you know, then yeah, it's, it's, you know, people today still say, oh, that was just an angry guy. But then, you know, the Kelly brothers come in a couple, you know, I don't know how many years later, but maybe 20 or 30 years later. And they're uh, from the RLDS church. And they're, they're kind of there to, uh, you know, go around and get some statements about was Joseph, uh, you know, did he get, was Solomon Spaulding involved and all this stuff. And, um, but a lot of their stories that they collect are, you know, matching up pretty well with what uh, Hurlbut collected. So, you know, and then you take all these other, you know, the printer, uh, um, just so many different uh, people collected stories and I wish there was more, you know, we don't have like Samuel Lawrence. We don't have his statement. And it'd be really cool if we had that one. And So based on the Kelly brothers, Dan, it would seem like it probably wasn't a case of undue influence on the part of Eber D. Howe or Philastus Hurlbut in getting these people to say what it is he wanted them to say. Um, I, I don't know for like, I would say that he, I'm sure he was, you know, trying to get people to say stuff. I mean, you know, he want he he didn't care so much about certain details and he's trying to get the story that he wants. But at the same time, those details still come through. Like, you know, there's a lot there that that um, we can still glean out of it, even if it's a really, you know, slanted um, story. Right. And when you say 20 years later, these Kelly brothers went back and they obviously if they're reorganized then they revere Joseph Smith. Yeah. And they're getting statements that are similar to the Hurlbut affidavits. Yeah, or at least like, you know, some details are getting corroborated or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, and then also you can you can go to Lucy Mack's own story, uh, you know, her own history of her family. And there's a lot of details in there or, um, you know, the Whitmers. Uh, we get a lot of interesting details there. And Martin Harris, you know, a lot of these guys are believers and they're telling us these stories as well. Uh, Porter Rockwell even, you know. Right. The reason I bring up that undue influence argument is because I first encountered that. I think it was Hugh Nibley's book, The Myth Makers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where he's trying to address the Hurlbut affidavits. Can I, I, I have one really important question I want to ask you, and it's based on my favorite footnote. Oh, okay. okay? I'm going to read this to you. These are your own words. Oh, <laughs> okay. And I want you to expatiate on this. Page 71. This is when Sally is telling Joseph Smith to put his head in the hat so oh, he can yeah. see what's going on with her stone that he's letting him look at in her hat. This is before he's found his own stone and where mm -hmm. he's going to look ultimately and find the location of his stone, which is like maybe 150 miles away. And he goes on that trek in order to find it. Okay. Here's your words. You're, you're smiling. I know you know what this is and what's coming. I was pretty annoyed. This is you speaking. Mm -hmm. I was pretty annoyed that the artists <laughs> were taking the fall for why members didn't know about Joseph Searstone. And even now, so many illustrations and reenactments show him just glancing down into the hat or shielding it with his hand. Mm -hmm. So I had a bit of fun having Sally instruct him that he must bury his face in his hat. Tell us about you're being annoyed about artists taking the fall for why it is that members didn't know about Joseph Searstone. 
Well, um, you you guys probably know more about this than me, but I'm pretty sure the church is pretty uh, careful about what is being you know illustrated. Um, they govern the every aspect yeah. from the initial sketches to the finished product, and it doesn't whoa, whoa, get published. Whoa, 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 hold what? on. I thought what? we blame the artist here. This is what we blame the <laughs> well, artist. the church has, and yeah. they've done it in a number of places. I think it's in the essay, but I know it's also in the 2015 October, was it, photo op of the Seer Stone? Yeah, so, they, yeah, yeah. when I saw the Seer Stone, you know, that honestly, that was the first time that I had, I didn't even know about it. I was kind of like, I'm, well, I may have heard about it. But it, it blew me away. I was like, holy smokes. And then did you um, not go to church? <laughs> Were right. you not, did you miss a lot of church at um, that point? I was no. Well, actually, at that point, I'm already out. But I'm just saying I was I was a very, you know, faithful member. Um, you know, I, I got all my seminary plaques and everything, but I had never heard of that. And um, so it it was shocking to me that. You know, here we have all these um, drawings of Joseph, uh, the way he was translating with, you know, like literally like um, he's got his fingers on the plates, you know, uncovered. He's looking at it and reading it. So um, and then, you know, it's it's one thing to be like, well, we just didn't know. And, you know, so here's here's the updated. Here's the new uh, history. Actually, it was under the cover the whole time. And he looked in the stone. But then they went ahead and said, well, you know, is the artist's fault, you know, like they, you guys should have read that, uh, you know, magazine from the eighties or something, you know, to know yes. your history. But, um, so yeah, I just, and then, and then after that to overcorrect the, the new, you know, artists were, um, illustrating Joseph just kind of doing this sort of thing, like, you know, just, oh, yeah. it just a little, but he's still, he still looks like he's doing something, but, um, you know, more present presentable, I guess. Um, and then, but all the sources have him, you know, except for like the one I point out with the candle, like almost all of them have him with his face in the hat. So, um, right. Well, it was a desperate and transparently obvious attempt mm -hmm. to shift blame from the leadership of the church, which is where it belongs as to how it is that they have represented in artwork over the decades, the translation mm -hmm. process of the Book of Mormon, because mm -hmm. they are the ones who <laughs> from sketches, from initial concepts, all the way through it doesn't get published until the correlation committee says go yeah i'm sorry what were you doing there bill i was just and i was going to do some translating here i got yeah. my seer stone there and it I've is got, i've got my joseph smith hat yeah oh, you will have white hat yep yeah look at that so, and another thing i liked about your book is that it gives i think the dignity to people to go ahead and take their stories at face value i mean when you have joseph smith looking in the hat right Mm -hmm. You don't have him seeing nothing and having maybe the spot balloon saying, okay, how can I make this up to be convincing? Mm -hmm. You actually have him seeing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, exactly. I just, I try to take it at face value. And again, I, I don't believe that. Um, but I, I just thought it, it makes a very cool American fantasy kind of story. If we take those, um, as the believer or as, as the um, narrator has, has told us the story happened. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, there's going to be a story about, um, you know, uh, demons and things like that, a giant uh, perched on the barn, you know? Um, and uh, so I'm actually, gonna, it's going to be a giant, you know, a eight foot tall guy, I guess um, on a barn where, you know, if you're a skeptic, you're like, well, that's probably just a guy up there in a, in a, 
in a sheet, you know, scaring them or something. Yeah. But if you're a believer, you know, um, it could be, you could interpret it some other way. Um, but I'm, I'm drawing it just kind of as they have stated in the source document. So, yeah. Is that like a scene out of the Mel Gibson movie signs? <laughs> yeah. They might, maybe that's where they got the inspiration. The alien up on the barn. Am I misremembering that? My listeners can let me know, but I thought there was a flash of an, an alien. You don't know it's an alien uh, yet, but a figure like, up on top of the barn. I don't think they're, if they ever on top of the barn, I don't know. Let us know. People Everybody out there. Yeah. You're making some weird noise, but I'm just actually making the noise of the aliens on the movie signs, which was just that clicking noise. Yeah. Swing <laughs> away, Bill. Swing, swing away. Yeah, swing away. He grabs the bat. <laughs> that's it. All because mom, yeah, was getting, uh, in, it was in that car accident and told uh, Mel Gibson to give that advice at some later point, yes. not to be revealed at this point in the, in the, in the show. Right. Yes. The word um, Mel Gibson is one eternal round. Yeah. At a future point that you'll reveal it later. Correct. Yes. Oh, I love this one. And it's so interesting because you have these big, uh, big illustrations, right. Mm -hmm. Where you put so much into them that, your footnotes are left to explain them for people like me who might not get all the symbolism and the references. It's like your book is full of Easter eggs. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I just, I'm, I like to draw, um, like I'm a concept artist, I guess, more than a, a character artist. And so I like to do these sort of uh, objects um, and things like that to kind of, you know, in a way it, it helps to build a world and, um, and I, I, you know, that's my strong, strong point. So that's what I try to do. So here we're, we were looking at like Lumen's um, magical implements. Right. And his book, which is, of course, he has a book. Mm -hmm. um, it looks like, by the way, hopefully I'm not going to go out on a limb again and have it break off under me. But it oh. looks like some of the diagrams you have here on the left page uh, may come from, is it the layman's that Joseph Smith had? Uh, yeah. So, well, we have... Uh, let's see. Actually, you're uh, some of these things are coming off of uh, his medallion, his yeah, his talisman, talisman, right? And then some of it is going to be inside of uh, let's see, the the Mar the the Mars dagger, I guess. Um, but both of these are pages straight out of the Magus book, and uh, they're not actually. I, I think I put in the notes. They're not actually. Oh, cool, Bill. I didn't know you. But Bill's holding up an actual copy of it there. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. You open this up, and it has what what you know what demons look like, how to do mm -hmm. spells. Um, it came with a little talisman. Yeah. So I, this is supposed to be the book mm -hmm. that that was used in that day. That some references are that Joseph had access to. Yeah, and I mean, I'm just kind of speculating there, but uh, you know, according to Abner Cole, it, it wasn't anything at all. It was just, uh, Cicero's orations in Latin that he was reading, not, uh, magic in, in any way, but, um, you know, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that perhaps there's some magic drawings in there, you know, illustrations. Yeah. yeah the I understand that the chief demons initials, at least in that book are RFM. <laughs> you know, people say there's a special place in hell for me. <laughs> and I agree. It's called a throne. <laughs> we have to look that up off off the off air here. <laughs> you know, one of the things you guys were talking about a few minutes ago is there's so much 
of Joseph Smith treasure digging in, in uh, Palmyra in the area. Mm-hmm. And we, we as critics are pretty aware of all these misses with, you know, Spanish silver mines and all that stuff. Um, RFM and I did an episode. I don't remember which order it was in, but it was like sheep, sheep bones, gold thrones and peak stones all on miners mm-hmm. Hill. Yeah. We talked at length about that at our at, um, excavation of the old Miners Hill and, and the, the two that were involved in that project and what all went on there and some of the stories associated. But because there's this plethora of this stuff and because Joseph is continually being sought after to perform these treasure digs, it becomes inevitable that on some level there were perceived successes, even though I, I don't, I'm a skeptic. I don't believe in the supernatural. Um, I, I don't use magic to explain my worldview. And so I don't believe these things happen, but I think that there were people in Joseph Smith's day around him in that neighborhood who believed that he had an ability to find things and there had to have been events. And, and, you know, we could debate whether Joseph took his neighbor's thing and then put it somewhere so that he could find it and then tell him where it was. Like there's, there's all those possibilities, but at least on some level, we have to acknowledge even as a critic that people came to Joseph having trusted that he really could find things and that somewhere, somehow there had to have been anecdotal data in that day that led people to believe that. Right. It doesn't take much success for that to grow. Like, um, you know, I think Joseph, one of his, one of the things I'm trying to bring across in this first book is his ability to kind of read people and, um, um, and, you know, like, here's an example of, you know, Martin Harris at one point loses a, um, a pin, you know, I think he's like picking his teeth with it and it flips off and falls in the hay. And it's like a fancy pin. It's not like, you know, like a, a needle. It's like something belonging to his wife probably. And probably like, um, you know, relationship, his relationship with his wife was kind of strained as it was. So he's like, Oh gosh, I've got to find this thing. And then Joseph, um, uses his stone. He's like, use, use your stone. You have your stone, use your stone, help me find it. And he does. And, you know, he puts his, and, and Martin Harris assures the, the, the audience, the future audience that Joseph didn't look out of his hat. He kept his head in there, you know, and he just put his hand straight out and moved a stick. And there it was, you know? So, um, even just something like that, you know, get Martin Harris, uh, he's going to go tell his neighbors about that. And, um, it, people, in, you know, in these rural towns are going to, um, you know, it, things like the stories are going to spread. And if you hit the bottom of, or you hit something and it sounds like a chest and, or you hear, heard a jingling of coins, you know, uh, you're going to believe you were close, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you too, when you sent the, the book to me, Mm-hmm. Uh, where maybe RFM you can show it the the bigger bookmark that shows that something else is on the way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. Tell us yep. a little bit. This obviously has been successful enough, and yeah, um, that you've you've got a second project coming. Tell us about that one. Yeah. So, um, look, you know, it was you know thanks to all the pre-orders people did and my patrons that supported me through this. Um, you know, it was successful. I was, and I just really appreciate, I mean, I can't thank everybody enough. Um, Sunstone also, uh, really helped out. Um, so, uh, this is like a continuation. I'll be able to fund the next book. Um, 
And the next book will focus on uh, 1822, uh, maybe going into 1823 a little bit. Um, and yeah, we'll be meeting, we'll, we'll start to encounter this, some stories that we're more familiar with, of course, uh, once we start to see the angel uh, slash treasure guardian from Kimura. Yeah. Is he going to look like the guy that Captain Kidd killed in the first part of this book? <laughs> That'd be cool. What a twist. No. Uh, yeah. Well, no, he's going to... Um... Have you already drawn him? Have you already figured him yeah, out? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if you go to the back, just as a spoiler, uh, you go to the back, that page where you will see, uh, there's an entire page of Moroni sketches. Um, and the reason that... I, the way I'm going to do it is... Um, I'm guessing this is it. No, oh, well, actually, I mean, that's him as there's well. There's Moroni, right? Uh, yes, but go back or possibly Nephi, depending on how you interpret it. But go back a little bit. There's a sketch of um, is it this one? Are, on the these, are these? Oh, yeah, that's it. So on that page, we have um, lots yeah, of versions of Moroni. So I, the way I interpret it is sort of um, he's he's uh, able to appear as needed kind of uh, and, and is, this one, yeah. is this one you're talking about that's right mm -hmm. if i can just jump in for just a quick second dr moore and that we only got like two minutes left oh, on this okay. but dr moore has promised to match all donations that come in for the next five minutes and that was like three minutes ago <laughs> so for anybody willing to drop five bucks ten bucks twenty bucks into the donations there right to the right of the video you're watching on youtube uh, thank you, Dr. Moore. He's done that several times at this point, and it is much appreciated. Uh, we survive on the donations. So, uh, folks, if you could donate a few bucks, and Dr. Moore will match that, and we probably got another maybe 45 seconds left. So, thank you. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I, that's that's it. It's just uh, Maroon I, I I'm going to have him appear in various forms, even through the stories. Uh, we have uh, the Whitmers talking about him looking different are so, you ever going to have him crawling out from under sister whitmer's chicken coop hiding under there right yeah yeah um that's i want i want that story in there yeah oh absolutely <laughs> everything they see so a guy walking cameras. along the road while they're going you know on their mm -hmm. their uh wagon and geez that was moroni you yep. see a uh some homeless guy mm -hmm. hiding under the chicken coop that's yep. moroni yeah it's mm -hmm. like you see a deer walking down the, in the forest you know it's like bambi and, but no, it's not Bambi. That's Jesus. And <laughs> yeah. everything had this spiritual. I mean, if you talk about looking through spiritual eyes, everything you see has a spiritual component to it. Yeah. And anything can be anything else as mm -hmm. long as it sort of matches your worldview. Mm -hmm. And it can be either good or it can be bad. But I think it's unlikely that except for this whole idea about Moroni, that they'd be looking at somebody, just a regular guy hiding under a chicken coop. We're walking down the road that they think that's an angel of God, but yeah. maybe they would. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There's some really fantastic tales and I can't wait to draw them. <laughs> so, yeah. By the way, I had a question and this is a geeky question. And I apologize. Okay. We got to have some callers call in, but um, you as such an artist and creative person, did you ever feel your artistic impulses constrained by having to hew to the, historical accounts uh you mean like you can't make stuff up you have oh. set out your goal that you're going to okay. create these vignettes that are going to represent the historical accounts did well, you ever feel constrained by that 
No, uh, I don't know. I, I guess I've been trained that way. I, um, for 10 years, I worked at an aerospace company and I had to uh, kind of, I had to be creative within limits, you know? So um, to me, I think it's, it's pretty cool. It's like, it gives you your boundaries and then you get to uh, experiment within those. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I just thought I'd ask that question. Did you have anything else, Bill, or did you want to open up to? Yeah, we'll callers. do the phone calls here. I just wanted to ask one last thing, which is when I look on the back of your book, mm-hmm. I see the, the toad here. Yeah. And the the name of it here is Lumen Books. Um, is yeah. this kind of the publisher name that you created to po- to publish the books under? Right. Yeah. So um, you know we're self published, but my wife is an attorney, and she helped me set up uh, business and everything. So um, yeah, we have Lumen Books as the publishing arm of Elwood Studios. So I love it. I love it. And uh, I'm assuming Deseret Book probably won't be carrying this. I didn't ask him, but yeah. Yeah, I would imagine their answer, right? They yeah. they carried Rough Stone Rolling. They, they carried Grant yeah. Palmer's uh, uh, Insider's View of Mormonism for a short time. Whoa, no way. I didn't so, know that. Yeah, they, once in a while, something slips in. Something gets past everybody, you know? Yeah. At some point, if you if you need a title for one of your books, you could do Portrait of the uh, Portrait of a Prophet as a Young Man. Hmm. Okay, never mind. <laughs> we'll see if anybody gets that. All right, so I'm going to put the number up, RFM, and, and Mark, feel free to help us out with this if you know how our show works. If you don't, you'll see what we're doing. But, folks, you can call us at 435-200-3478 or 435-200-4. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh. Okay, there you go. It took me a while to figure it out. Hold it up there. I was unprepared. Be proud. Okay, there you go. That's right. If anybody tuned in just then, they thought that was like a white supremacist uh, live show that we were doing or something. But yeah, hopefully we didn't do that at all. We we've got a Google Voice number that we use, and we tried to come up with uh, using those letters that each number represents on a phone. Tried to come up with a cool word, and we were left with either fist or dirt. That was our two choices. <laughs> we went with fist. So we went with fist. Uh, caller number one, you are on the line. Your name. Sam Wilson. Sam, you uh, you're on the show live, Mormonism Live with uh, Mark Elwood. What is this? The Falcons Real calling? And Bill Real. Hell what, yeah. Yeah. So what do you got for us, my friend? Well, I just wanted to compliment the show tonight and then uh tell Mark that's a heck of a thing that he's doing. Oh, thanks. Um he's uh, obviously done research, uh done his artwork, and I've been thinking I'm I don't know how it is, Mark, around 34, 35. You say anyway, how- in the zeitgeist that's going on is uh, there should be a graphic novel done next. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's kind of where he's working towards. Yeah. And then an HBO show. How about that? I, I thought the same thing, by the way, caller, which is I um, there is this idea out there that Mormonism would make a wonderful historical based TV series. And I mean, it can be gritty. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And what Mark has done is lined out the very first stage of what that could look like and how incredibly interesting uh, a TV series about Mormonism and Joseph Smith would be. Yeah. It could be Sopranos on steroids. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. There, there would be a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. You don't even have to stretch the truth that far. You just have to go back to the real truth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, you don't. Yeah, it's not. Sometimes uh, reality is crazier than fiction, isn't it? <laughs> and yeah, and this is cool what this guy's doing. I just want to put that in. Yeah, love what you guys are doing. You guys hear that every time. Perfect. Thank you, my friend. You're doing it. Thank you. Have a great Thanks, night. Guys. And I never grow tired of hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Sam Wilson, do you hear? I don't know if they can hear me. I mean, that's we got the Falcon calling. Yeah, the, the Falcon. I don't know. Sam Wilson. Is that a TV well, show? Do you know who Steve Rogers is? Uh, Steve Rogers was the bionic man. Oh, my gosh. This is so embarrassing. Wasn't it? Uh, no, Steve Rogers is Captain America. Oh, OK. Yes. Who's uh, who's the bionic man? Steve what? <laughs> um, it'll come to me. But the Sam Wilson is the Falcon. <laughs> OK. So anyway. Uh, okay, so extra credit for anybody who can come in with the name of the Bionic Man, played by Lee Majors back in the seventies. That was um, Steve Austin, a man Steve barely Austin. alive. Not to be confused with the uh, beer swiggling, stone cold Steve Austin, but right, we can rebuild him. We yeah. have the technology. Yeah, I, I, my favorite was when he fought Andre the Giant as Bigfoot. That was that was. A oh cool my episode. gosh! Yeah, I think that was kind of like the Bionic Man's version of jumping the shark. <laughs> it was it. That's when stuff went south. Uh, Brandon, is that did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. You are caller number two on Mormonism Live tonight with Mark Elwood, the author and illustrator of the Glass Looker, collected tales of Joseph Smith. Um, what do you got for us tonight, my friend? First of all, thank you so much for taking the call. You're welcome. Oh, my God. Seriously. I'm a huge fan. I love the show. RFM. This guy's got so much charisma, I feel like uh, I would follow him down any path, like plural marriage, whatever. <laughs> That's all it takes, my friend, is some charisma. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about a, what do you call it, like a graphic novel for Joseph Smith? Is that what? Yeah. Is that what yeah. We're talking about? Yep. That's killer, man. Yeah. Killer. Hey. What, so anyway, I have a question. Sure. Number one. Who was the greatest prophet of all time? The greatest prophet of all time. Um Denver Sneffer. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that funny? He is my favorite oh. prophet. I talked to him on the phone yesterday and I said, How's my favorite prophet doing? If yeah, if you're talking Mormonism, you you have to go with Joseph Smith. I can't imagine anybody else. Uh, you know, President Hinckley, Howard W. Hunter, uh, you know, George Albert Smith, and how are those guys going to even compare? They didn't come up with anything. Yeah. So you um, know, a lot of these guys love uh, a lot of my friends. They love the Gordon B. Hinckley. He was a cool guy. Yeah, he was a good guy. He just didn't I, prophesy. I, he lost a lot of faith. Like yeah, I lost a lot of like sort of like um, respect for him when he when he got a little bit a little bit silly, right? With the interview talking about I don't know that we teach that I don't yeah. know that we will teach that right. You know what I mean? I was a child at the time, but I just thought like I know that. Yeah, <laughs> right. I still believe it. They're still teaching me this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I. But anyways, one last thing before I go, Joseph Smith though, like I think about him as a man, one man to another, right? We're kind of like in this androgynous phase right now where we're just sort of like unsure about what the genders mean, blah, blah, blah. At the time, like when you're Joseph Smith in that time, you're a dude who has command over all these people and you're just picking off one lady after another. You're just yeah. banging and banging yeah. and banging, right? And it's as like a, as like a heterosexual, um, I don't know, man. Yeah. 
I look at that guy and I think this guy's kind of a badass. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I think that. All right, so I'm going to move on from that call, RFM. Just did you just hang up on my fan, Brandon? I did only because uh, I, I'm not going to sit idly by, I guess, while we call traumatic behavior like cool and uh, macho, you know, because that seemed pretty unhealthy when you're talking about using uh, spiritual rhetoric to manipulate people, especially young women, underage girls, and do sexual encounters. I don't know that I can really make that cool. Okay, I just want I just want Brandon to know I'm against your being cut off by Bill Real, and I'm going to lodge a formal complaint with the FCC. Josh, you are on Mormonism Live with Mark Elwood, Radio Free Mormon, and myself. Mark is the author and illustrator of the Glass Looker Collected Tales of Joseph Smith. What do you have for us tonight, my friend? Oh, first, I, I uh, first off, I want to make a comment that. Uh, Today's episode makes me feel like I'm listening to uh, old um, Coast to Coast radio show episodes. If you guys remember uh, that, uh, it was like an old like radio show from like the 90s and the early aughts where uh, people could just discuss uh, like supernatural stuff. Like Art Bell. Coast to Coast. Art Bell, yeah. It reminded me of that. And I just like reading uh, like today's episode kind of like it's maybe it dawned on me why the church can't really own the holy the uh you know the folk magic stuff because they don't want to be the folk magic church they want like respectability you know they want like the like you know like uh nuclear family america they don't they don't want like you know a guy like messing around in his backyard or like you know like licking clothes or, or whatnot. They don't want that. They want to be like the church of the CEOs and like the academics. Uh, although, you know, they, they excommunicate academics. Um, and they will probably excommunicate like, you know, Joseph Smith too, if, if you're a member of the church today. Um, yeah, I just, and also I want to say, uh, like, Mark, uh, I, yeah, I live in Utah in Public City. Um, and uh, if you're ever, ever around, just uh, let me know, and uh, I'll come and uh, I like to like you know maybe have my book signed or a copy of the book signed by you. Yeah, that's all I want to say. Awesome, thank awesome. you. Well, they don't excommunicate any real scholars; only so-called scholars. Yeah, only the lazy learners who get it wrong. Yes, mm-hmm. I hate those lazy learners. By the yeah, way, yeah. We'll, we'll take one more here uh, before we get too far. Look at that <laughs> lazy learner. We'll take one more call and kind of. Uh, Take the call, and then, Mark, I want to give you one more chance to tell people where to get the book. I imagine that Benchmark's going to be out of them tomorrow. And Caller, you're the last one here on for the night for Mormonism Live. Uh, what's the name? Um, it's funny. My name is Brandon. I'm a different Brandon, though. Yeah, yeah I can, I can see the voice. I won't hang up on Cut you. Cut him off, Bill. Cut him off. Okay, okay. so <laughs> give, us, give us your thoughts uh, with Mark and uh, his incredible book that we're talking about. Uh, sorry, could you repeat that? I said, just uh, what do you what do you have on your mind regarding Mark and the the incredible book that he's put together? Oh, I just I had a question for him. Uh, sure. His opinion on whether or not the church might uh, take a move in his direction, start maybe doing some more historically accurate art. Historically accurate, what? He's asking if you think that the church will start uh, creating more accurate art around these events, whether it's treasure digging or other things that they'll represent these historical mm-hmm. events more accurately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I do think, you know, as these, you know, I, I think 
there was a trajectory for the church to try to like get away from from the treasure digging for a long time, obviously. And I think now it's it's pretty much accepted. Like this is the way it is. Um, you know, we do have artists like Anthony Sweat. Um, I think is his name. He's, he's doing a lot of cool stuff. Um, uh, and you know. I think even just like the they just published you know saints volume one like we're, we're taking some baby steps towards um making it more normalized i guess and if you've ever talked to a missionary recently um you know they have these talking points like you know that's just like a cell phone or um you know have you know most there's all these things in the old testament that were magical you know but they're not really it's it's just the way god works you know um so I think so. I think the art's going to start reflecting that as well. But, you know, they're, they're not going to ever do like show some of these stories because of uh, they, they can always like say, well, the sources are are grumpy people that don't believe us or don't believe Joseph Smith was a prophet. So. Right. And to some extent, they already are changing. Mm -hmm. Some. Yeah. Like they have a hat. Yeah. In a picture. I mean, and Joseph had... Smith. Yeah, Joseph, it may sort of just sort of be sitting like, uh, I don't know, on the other side of the plates or something. And maybe yeah. you could just see the, the brim of a hat in one of the pictures. But there is a change toward being mm -hmm. more accurate. Mm -hmm. If uh, accuracy is on the, you know, in the what, in the end zone, then they may be on the 10 yard line, but at least they've gotten out of their own mm -hmm. end zone and they're heading in the right direction. Yeah. 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 I think it was wild that Russell Nelson, like, posed with the hat there and then he kind of like caught himself like maybe this is going to turn into a meme i better you know not do this but he didn't really look comfortable to me doing uh, that yeah <laughs> was it so, joy jones who was with him was it joy jones who was interviewing him i don't know it was it was one of the the female leaders in the church at the time and she's just going oh yes oh yes i'll believe uh -huh. whatever you tell me oh yeah and i think that represents a lot of the followers of joseph smith mm-hmm yeah, prophets don't lie. They're the most honest people with us. Well, Bill, prophets tell the truth. They tell the you, truth. And we know that because the prophet said it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Same guy who flew in a plane that didn't do what he said it did. Right. Oh, yeah. That was unfortunate. And there was the incident <laughs> at Mozambique and the lady yeah. in the hat and all those yeah. other things. Right. Yeah. The book was pulled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got all, yeah, all those stories. You can fill a book with all the stories that Russell Nelson's made up. <laughs> so, Mark, let's wrap up. Um you told people earlier they can get the book, they can order the book on your site, but you're out, theglasslooker.com. Um, yeah. But we also put a plug in for Benchmark. If you want to get a physical copy in the next day or two or three, the place to get it is Benchmark Books. You can say hi to Chris Bench there um, and uh, uh, plug out for, for Benchmark Books there. I think they're the best bookstore uh, in Salt Lake City to get just about anything that's Mormon related. Uh, anywhere else uh, that the book is available? Um, just the website and, um, yeah, just on my website, which is, uh, Mark, I'm sorry, which is, uh, the glasslooker.com. Um, and yeah. And benchmark, you, if you really want to copy quick uh, and you happen to live in Utah, make sure you hit up benchmark. And I've got a copy here. If people want to contact me. I will let this go for an egregiously inflated price. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and I'll be a little less. <laughs> um, I appreciate it, Mark. This this is a beautiful project, and I'm so excited to hear that you're coming out with a second book. And I hope this turns into some sort of series. Mm -hmm. I think your work is incredible, and I think you are doing a great justice for those who read this 
to better understand this early folk magic with Joseph Smith in a way that allows them to kind of deal with it all head on, um, all in one place, rather than kind of having to go locate different stories in a thousand different places. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I just hope when you get to the polygamy stuff, you'll do it tastefully. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to go that far. Yeah, I don't have to carry this in a brown paper yeah. wrapper. Yeah. yeah it, it can't be Brandon's favorite book. So you got to do it differently. Brandon number one. Yeah. Brandon number one. Brandon number two was all right. Brandon number one. So anyway, uh, Mark, thanks a lot for your time tonight, my friend. I hope that you get off uh, this show with us and you look on your site and realize there's about 25, 30, 30 <laughs> books ordered from this show. So, yeah. and, uh, and I'll, I'll touch base with Chris, Chris bench tomorrow and see if uh, he sold a bunch of copies uh, in the next 24 hours. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, definitely coming on the show with you guys. I, I definitely, as I've been working on this, I consumed a lot of your show uh, as well as other podcasts. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's the least I can do to send you guys a copy. Be, um, because, uh, I mean, I just, you know, I just love, uh, all the content you guys have been making. So I've thrown a lot of Mormon stuff out over the last few years. Mm -hmm. This is one I will hang on to my friend. Oh, thanks. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Have a beautiful day and, uh, and we'll let you go. Thanks. Appreciate it. Bye. RFM, great show. I uh, hope folks uh, took the chance to donate there while Dr. Moore was making the offer. I'll have to check here in a few minutes and see how that went. I want our um, listeners to make Dr. Moore a poor man. Yeah, make him a poor man. It is super kind of him. It's so amazing. We've got a goal. We started off, as you pointed out, we're almost coming up on a year. And we had a goal to raise $20,000 for this year, the first year of Mormonism Live. And I think before the show started, I think we were a little over 12,000. And so I'm curious if anybody sees the numbers there. I'm not on YouTube right now. So if anybody sees the numbers, I'd love to know what we raised tonight. But if anybody out there can help us, if you can help us get to that 20,000, that would be a big help. Um, that's the amount we're trying to raise through YouTube uh, for this show and, and for uh, our entity, Mormon Discussion Incorporated in general. But uh, a large chunk of it is Mormonism Live. So uh, appreciate everybody who does donate. Uh, and for those who don't, uh, we'd love your help too. And, and appreciate all of you tune in to listen and to hear the podcast version the next day. Anything give 60 else? Seconds for, yes. Give Please. 60 seconds for a debate update. Please do. Yes. It looks like this is happening by all fits and starts. Them? All three of them. Yeah. It's like we're having to just like rope and pull midnight Mormons to this debate that they were so anxious to do. You know, but finally, finally, they put up, uh, by the way, on my Facebook page at Radio Free Mormon, there are updates and there's a whole slew of them because I've documented this whole thing since the end of September. There are, I found out that uh, Midnight Mormons did a couple days ago, put up a request for questions, finally. And I talked with Sean McCraney today, the guy who's going to host this uh, debate at his church on November 13th, 6 o'clock p.m. at the campus church in Murray, Utah. Okay, so I got that out of there. And he had not heard back from Quaku or anybody about the questions. He actually hadn't heard back from him since the last time uh, I reported. And he said he was probably going to have to get in touch with them either today or tomorrow and let them know he does not have access to social media. He cannot see these questions that have been promoted by their listeners for the debate. And so he's going to have to ask them to do what he asked me to do, which was copy and paste them in an email to him. Mm. So, but they're, they're collecting questions. I don't know who's going to show up. I don't know how many is going to show up. I hope all three show up because that was the deal. I know they've manifested a little bit of uh, reluctance to do that uh, because they think somehow it wouldn't be a fair fight. 
I disagree with that. I think they might need a few more. But as long as one of them shows up, there's going to be a debate. And I hope all three will. So we'll have a whole lot of fun. Yeah. And that goes right along with Thrive, right? You and I are going to be in uh, Salt Lake City yep. uh, next Sunday, all day long uh, for the Thrive uh, that's going on. And this is to help people on the other side of religion as they're deconstructing to have support and to have... Uh, to be able to kind of figure out their way on the other side of things. Cause that early on process of deconstructing is often tumultuous and uh, full of stress and anxiety as you're trying to unravel what you used to believe in versus what you're now learning. And uh, there are 15 minute talks all day long from really, I mean, uh, John DeLynn and the open stories foundation did a heck of a good job. Of course they did. We got you and me, right? Absolutely. So, the proof of the pudding. And I think we're pretty early in the morning, aren't we? By the way, for now, and I'd like for you to call me Mr. Charisma. Mr. Could you do that for me, Bill? That's a good, uh, like a wrestling one. <laughs> Mr. Charisma. I like that. <laughs> you know, Brandon number one wasn't all bad. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm sure he wasn't. I just, you know, couldn't let that sit. So, um, Oh, by the way, and also, you were using next Sunday in the technically correct sense. I just want to make sure it's clear to everybody that that's a week from this coming Sunday on November 14th. Yeah. In Salt Lake City at the Salt Palace, right? Yeah. And in yeah. fact, I don't, when are you coming into town, RFM? I am flying in on Friday. I should uh, be landing around noon on Friday the 12th. Yeah. I'm going to come up Friday night. I'll probably be there a little late. So probably a little too late to do a dinner, although maybe not. Um, if there are any listeners, I'm just, I'm throwing this out and kind of spur of the moment, but if there are any listeners who are going to be in the area, be it Thrive, uh, if you want to grab a breakfast or a lunch or a dinner, uh, I will try my best. And RFM, I'm sure you would too. Try our best to to sit down with a few of you and say hi and, and shake hands and uh, get a chance to kind of touch base with you guys and hear your stories. Um, I'll make myself available. Um, and I am normally first in line for a free meal, but I am going to be spending some time with my daughter who lives down there. Okay, so it might be bill real only, but if you if you're interested in grabbing a breakfast or a lunch and uh, uh, chatting for a little while, I would welcome that. Uh, reach out to me. Just send me a message on maybe Facebook Messenger, or you can email the podcast at Mormon Discussions, plural, podcast, plural, uh, at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, we'll both be at Thrive. You're doing the debate. I'm hoping to be there for the debate as well. And, uh, and when he says that, he cool. means in a supporting role, not on the stage. No, no, just no. Because Midnight Mormons is going to grab that, and they're going to run, you know. The, no, um, yeah, taking I, things out of context is their fort, right? And they promised to apologize, right? And that hasn't happened yet, has it? Have they promised to apologize? I'm no, not I, sure if they promised to apologize. I had the impression that they might actually put out some, I don't know, some uh, correct information. Let me say but, that differently. You corrected the story for them, and they now know that the way they posed it in their video is inaccurate. And they haven't chosen yet to correct it themselves, um, as far as you know. Yeah, just ask John DeLynn. The last thing in the world you want is for them to give you an apology. Yeah, no, no. It turns into something else, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. Cool. Well, great night, everybody. Thanks again, RFM. And uh, I guess we can end off with this one little quote that always uh, comes into play with uh, the book, The Glass Looker. Give Brother Joseph a break. And otherwise, everybody, have a fantastic night from Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real on Mormonism Live. Good night, everybody.